0: Well, as you can see, the most important message of the morning is set on the table before us. But you're not going to get by that easy. I have a message also uh, I'd like to share with you. I want to begin by asking you a question which may seem to be the kind of question that brings a reply that is nothing more than a profound grasp of the obvious. And what I want to ask you is... Why did you come here today? Why are you here? Now, for some, it may be, well, it's what Christians are supposed to do. They're supposed to go to church, uh, you know, on Sunday or whenever the church meets. Uh, Perhaps you're here because your spouse insists that you be here. Or if you're young enough and still living in the home, maybe your parents require you uh, to be here. Uh, Some of you have a sense that the Bible requires it. Maybe for some of you, it's you like the goodies on the table out there. I don't know. And some of you, Brad, you're paid to be here, as am I. But you know that there are more significant reasons than any of those that I've just floated. In fact, all the reasons we need, we just sang in the Church's One Foundation hymn, if you really focused on the lyrics as we sang them. But I'm asking the question, why are we here? Because if we are not careful, uh, we can allow the why we are here to get lost and in the repetition and in the familiarity of coming. And my purpose with the message this morning before we share the bread and the cup is to remind us of the supreme goodness of the immense value and the vital importance of what we are doing here as we are gathered as a congregation this morning. A truth, by the way, that the first readers of our text today in the book of Hebrews had lost sight of. If you would please turn to Hebrews chapter 10, if you've not already, by the back of the bulletin that tipped you off as to what verses we would be looking at. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm actually going to start reading just a few verses before the ones that are printed on your bulletin. I'm going to start in Hebrews 10 verse 19. And again, I say that the readers of this letter had lost sight of the importance of why we are here. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I will be citing some other verses in addition to these, but really it was this passage as we were dealing with it in the adult Baba class just a couple of Sundays ago that prompted me to want to bring this message this morning. And so as we consider the function of collectively meeting like this, I want to hone in on two principles with you from these verses. The first is a promise of presence, and then secondly, a principle of a costly negligence. And of course, the presence I I speak of, as Brad has already mentioned and alluded to, is that we are here in the presence of the Lord. And when we speak of the presence of the Lord, those of us who are acquainted with the bible's teaching know that we experience his presence at two different levels one is at an individual level that christ is with his own always he says i will never leave you nor forsake you so even the person who's stranded on a desert isle by themselves is not really alone if they're in christ because jesus is with them and the other way the bible speaks of the presence of the lord among us, is when we are collectively gathered as a congregation or an assembly of believers. My focus this morning is on the second, the significance of the Lord being present when we are gathered collectively as we are today. And we know that in Scripture, the Lord gives a summons to do what we're doing here. Uh, The well-known verses in Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7, come Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. As you recall, the conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, a very extended conversation, but I just lift one statement of Jesus from His interaction with her when He says to her, An hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people. The Father seeks to be His worshipers. God invites, He seeks us to worship Him. When I had scribbled out the outline for these verses, I had originally put as that first point under a promise of presence, the Lord's invitation. But the more I thought about it, I felt like the Lord's invitation was not the best way to express this. Because we all get all sorts of invitations, all the time. All kinds of events and parties, etc. But of course, when we get an invitation, we're free to either accept or decline the invitation. So I put the Lord's summons. You know what a summons is, at least in a legal sense. That means if you get a summons, you're obligated to show up. And there is an obligation Worship is not only something we should yearn for, we need to remember it's something that God commands. Two brief verses, Psalm 99, five, exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool, holy is He. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Now, the fact that it's translated as do his name means it's something that we're indebted to do. It's something we owe him. And of course, the corporate worship of the Israelites was centered in the temple on the Sabbath day. And it was a rhythm of life for them that was established at creation with God creating the six days, the seventh day of rest, and that day of rest then became very intricately linked with the idea of a rest that is characterized by worshiping God, not just a cessation of activity, but a, an activity of worshiping, honoring, and exalting the Creator. Now, throughout history, uh, the Jews were dispersed and separated from the tabernacle and later the temple. And, of course, there were emerged synagogues where they began to worship weekly in smaller groups in the locale where they happened to be living. Jesus and the apostles, the New Testament, uh, give testimony to the fact that they were faithful to attend synagogue weekly. But after Christ's resurrection and the birth of the church, those of you who know church history and have followed it through the New Testament, we realize that the Jewish Sabbath was replaced, which typically started sundown Friday and ended sundown on Saturday. And it was replaced with what was called the Lord's Day, and it moved the main weekly day of corporate worship to Sunday. B.B. Warfield, who was a very renowned theologian in the first half of the 20th century, Brad and I both have read him, it's easier to say B.B. Warfield than to say Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, but anyway, he once wrote that Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought out the Lord's Day on the resurrection morning and certainly uh, we see that uh, evidenced in the New Testament. It's not numerous mention, but there's enough to let us know that there was this habit, this pattern that was established. For example, in Acts 20 verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And so just that little insight is that the Christians are gathering and Paul's addressing them, but it's typically on the first day of the week, which, of course, is Sunday. And writing to the Corinthians, Paul is interested in taking a collection from those believers to take back the people in need back in Judea. And he says, expecting that they're going to be gathered, and that's when they can kind of donate to this collection he wants to take back, he writes, on the first day of every week, each one of you do each one of you, is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections will be made when I come. And then John, when he writes his revelation in chapter 1 verse 10, says he's in the Spirit, and he specifically adds the comment, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Again, that reference to Sunday, the first day of the week, being the time to collectively gather as God's people. I have some references in front of you, but I'll not read them to you, just to mention that some of the early church fathers starting as early as A.D. 100, A.D. 110, and on through the second century, all give testimony to the fact that it was expected, it was the practice of Christians to meet on the first day of the week, and it was called the Lord's Day. Uh, one such man that you probably have heard of, a man by the name of Justin Martyr, uh, he wrote and described in the middle of the second century, then, the first day of each week, Christians came together, he said, for reading scripture, preaching, prayer, and collecting an offering. They met because they expected the promise to be fulfilled that when they met, they were in the presence of the Lord in a corporate manner. And of course, the Lord's presence is is amplified by Jesus' statement in Matthew eighteen twenty, when he said these very familiar words, but I don't know if you thought about them when you came in here for us to gather this morning. Jesus said, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, obviously, Jesus' resurrection body is in a spatial place called heaven. But it's by his spirit that he says he's present. Now is his spirit present with us when we're sitting by ourselves? Of course he is. But there is something unique about the fact that when God's people gather that his presence takes on a more manifest, collective, powerful sense that we are in the presence of God, worshiping him with the family of God. And that fact brings us back to the Hebrews 10 passage where these believers are being reminded in verse 19 and all the chapters that have preceded it, and we don't have time to summarize them for you this morning, but the fact of the matter is they had at one point in their life professed faith in Christ, most of them were Jewish, and as a couple of decades rolled by, some of them started withdrawing from gathering with Christians and worshiping on the Lord's Day, and they started going to synagogue again on Saturday. They somehow lost sight of the amazing privilege we have as believers to enter into the very presence of God, which is what he's getting at when he says the holy place in verse 19, and that Jesus, by dying on the cross, that veil that separated people from the holy of holies, which represented the very presence of God, all of a sudden that which had said no entry was opened up, and we had direct access to commune with and to be in the presence of the Lord. You know what's even more exciting about what we're doing here right now? Flip over two chapters to Hebrews 12. We won't stay there long, but I've got to just bring this to your attention. I was kind of, I was marveling about this again uh, just this week. In Hebrews chapter 12, again, he's writing to these Jewish people who are professing to be Christians. He's hearkening to history, and he says, verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to be sprinkled with blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Realize what he's saying there? that when we are in corporate worship, even though we don't see it, we are combining with what is going on in heaven at this very moment. In fact, he mentions three particular parties there in those verses I just read. There's the divine, there's God, the judge of all things, and Christ, His Son. There's the angelic beings that are there, and then there are human beings, that is the righteous made perfect are those who have lived in the past, have now died, and they're now in the presence of the Lord in heaven. Well, that speaks to us of something that's going on in heaven even as we're engaged in it here on earth. One of the more popular theologians uh, here in the latter part of the 20th century, I know some of you own a volume by Wayne Grudem. I'm going to borrow his description here. He writes, this is the reality of new covenant worship. It actually is worship in the presence of God, though we do not now see him with our physical eyes, nor do we see the angels gathered around his throne, or the spirits of believers who have gone before and are now worshiping in God's presence. But it is all there, and it is all real, more real and more permanent than the physical creation that we see around us, which will someday be destroyed in the final judgment. And if we believe scripture to be true, then we must also believe it to be actually true that we ourselves come to that place and join our voices with those already worshiping in heaven whenever we come to God and worship. This is part of what is being addressed when we say the Apostles' Creed together. One of the statements we say is, I believe in the communion of the saints. And if you go back and read the history behind that, and especially through the reformers, that communion of the saints means not just the ones living now, but the oneness we have with all those who've gone before us. When we gather together under the promise that Jesus says he is here in our midst, some of you perhaps. Uh, have had the opportunity to travel as as I have. and of course, we have not uh, grown up in a country that has monarchs. But when you go and visit uh, the palaces of kings and queens, uh, I've been to them uh, in Amsterdam and in Brussels, Belgium, and of course in England. And certainly, wherever the king or the queen resides, you know that they're there actually at that moment because they fly a particular flag. If you've seen Buckingham Palace. If you want to know if Queen Elizabeth's actually in there, you just look up and that flag lets you know whether she's there or not. I don't know what it is. Uh, there's something about visiting a place like that and to know that they're actually physically there just makes it seem all the more kind of cool, you know. I'm standing out here, but the actual Queen of England is right in there. probably doesn't make my heart beat faster like it would George Bowes, but nonetheless. But I like the way one writer put it addressing this point. He said that when we gather in the name of Jesus, he says we are gathering where the flag of Jesus flies. It declares he is present and identifies himself with this gathering and places his stamp of authority upon this assembly. It's as if we went out to the flagpole and raised a flag with the name of Jesus' Lord on it to identify our gathering here as a place where God and the person of his Son is present. So, when we gather like this with the promise that Jesus is in our midst, what is achieved? What do we experience? Well, again, Scripture is helpful, what we should expect. Uh, I'll quote once from Paul, once from Peter, and then once from the writer of Hebrews in another place. Paul says to the Colossians, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We've experienced that already this morning. Peter uses this analogy of a building of a temple actually being a building of living stones that make up a spiritual temple and he writes this to describe believers gathering. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So with Peter's metaphor there, each of us is a block in the building, not inanimate objects, but living stones with Jesus as the cornerstone and then that which only the Levitical priests used to do now we do as a priesthood of believers as we come directly into the presence of God. What he specifically mentions is offering up spiritual sacrifices. The writer to the Hebrews here in chapter 13 adds this thought, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So as we have thanked the Lord in prayer, as we've been singing, we have been offering a sacrifice to God. That's part of what we experience and what's to be achieved as we gather. Gathering like this means we're identifying with the body of Christ. Uh, Corporate worship gives us the opportunity to exercise the affirmation of the doctrines that we believe, that we, we are with people of like mind and like heart. That we hear the word of God taught by those who've been given the gift of teaching. That as we gather like this, there's a, there's a stimulus uh, for discipleship. It fosters accountability. We are exposed to examples to follow as we look into the lives of each other. Corporate worship on a regular basis provides a framework in which we live our Christian lives, and certainly it fosters love for one another and it promotes unity. Mark Dever has an interesting observation in that regard, a pastor in Washington, D.C. He writes, a congregation's united action is fostered by receiving the same teaching and hearing the same shaping experiences in public worship. In short, unity inside the congregation is easier to maintain when the congregation is regularly gathering. But we come to verse 25 where they should not have been shrinking back from attending the gathered church. But alas, they have where does that come from? Alas. I haven't been reading Shakespeare lately, but anyway, in, alas means there's something with regret coming. <laughs> but alas, some of these Hebrews were abandoning meeting together, as it says in verse 25. Why were they forsaking the assembling of themselves together? Well, if you glance ahead down a few verses in this chapter, I think we can see some of the reasons. In verses 32 through 34 we read, Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Perhaps they had become weary of the price they were paying. Uh, And also the guilt by association of being with other Christians and saying I'm part of them with the kind of pressures uh, officially and unofficially that came from the society in which they were living. I think it's safe and reasonable to assume that if they were from strong Jewish families there was probably pressure from family members as well as friends. Why don't you come back to temple? We miss you uh, at the holidays, etc., Perhaps they had become somewhat disillusioned that the day, as it's drawing near, as he says, references at the end of verse 25, there was this expectation of Christ returning. And by the time this letter is written, it's been, oh, at least 25, 30 years, maybe even a little longer since Jesus ascended and went back to heaven. And perhaps looking to that day, they were becoming somewhat weary because it just hadn't happened yet. And perhaps they just found themselves entangled in other things and distracted and busy. That's not far-fetched to think. Uh, One of the ancient... Uh, writings that exist that's not a part of the Bible dating between 100 and A.D. 150, uh, it's interesting, this one ancient writer was talking about uh, a church in Rome and he just observed that a preoccupation with business affairs accounted for the neglect of attending meetings at a particular house church. So even back in the second century, being preoccupied with business was starting to make inroads and in causing them to not be faithful and gathering regularly. But why in our culture today, without the persecutions and some of the things that they faced, why do any professing Christians today fall into the the trap of thinking they don't need to assemble with the church regularly? It could be several reasons. Um, A strong sense of individualism, I don't need other people. Me, God, and my Bible, that's all I need. John Wesley, who established the Methodist denomination, said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. There is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. But I think in today's world, uh, what I've observed, is that basically people often become irregular inattentive to the importance of corporate worship because the priorities are out of whack. The priorities have gotten jumbled. Something as simple as bad weather being a reason not to go to church or finding the beach just too alluring in the especially warmer months to take off every weekend. Perhaps there's other hobbies and other pursuits that we think we need more than gathering with God's people? I think I referenced this before, but hey, I'm getting older. I repeat myself. Uh, Somewhere in Brad's distant past, he had a church member who announced to him one Sunday, well, I'll see you again in so many weeks. It's hunting season. So he was checking out. How many weeks was it going to be? Yeah. I mean, hey, there's nothing wrong with hunting, there's nothing wrong with golfing, all these things we like to do, but to just decide you're going to check out a corporate worship weekly with your brothers and sisters for weeks at a time because you want to hunt, I call that a priority out of whack. Uh, People start to see the church as something good, but it's optional. We start to have this casual, flippant attitude about why we're here today. And then, if I haven't made you squirm at all, obviously you're here so I guess I'm preaching to the choir what are we teaching our children about our personal family habits what are we teaching them about the priority of worship of gathering with God's people on the Lord's day if our sons and daughters observe us us scurrying around to make sure we get them to school or to piano lessons or to sports practice punctually but practically portray a lackadaisical attitude about getting to church or skipping it altogether. A pastor that I've grown to appreciate and many have, uh, his name is Kevin DeYoung, Uh, he pastors in North Carolina, and I want to pass along his testimony in this regard Kevin DeYoung writes, I've been a pastor for more than 15 years now, and in those years I fear that I have seen regular Christians treat weekly worship less and less seriously. I grew up with my parents' unswerving commitment to morning and evening worship. Now that I'm a parent, I see how much effort it took to establish such a pattern. I'll always be thankful for the ingrained habit of going to church virtually no matter what. Then he asked, are we teaching our kids that Sunday is the day we go to church or the day we try to squeeze in church? I understand that parents may draw the line in different places, but surely there are few habits more important to pass on to our children than the rock-solid routine of going to church every Lord's Day. It will be hard for our children to come to the conclusion that church is important for them if we raise them to think it was only a third or a fourth priority for us. We may say that Jesus is Lord, but end up showing that soccer is the real king. Somehow we've gotten the idea that gathering with God's people to worship at God's throne and to hear from God's word is something that's fine to do when it fits in our schedule. This is not the New Testament pattern. I've often thought of this question for me and my children, is Sunday my day of climax or collapse? For many of us, Friday and Saturday are climax with dinners and parties and games and late nights out. Sunday is the day we try to get through as we get ready for Monday. If we're going to make the Lord's Day a day of worship instead of weariness, we need to plan ahead. We need to work hard on Saturday in order to listen well and participate on Sunday. Now we can't delve into all the issues this morning about on the Sabbath day, what is appropriate or inappropriate in terms of recreation and your activities, etc. But I do want to just mention a couple of principles that I think should be stakes that are driven in this regard. That our corporate regular gathering should be consistent as Christians. Uh, I think it's John MacArthur who once said that worship for the Christian is like the mainspring of a watch. The most important people in your life, outside your immediate family, should be the people sitting in this room if you're a part of the chapel. A day in the rhythm of life where we honor the Lord in a focused way. We're not required to follow the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament. In fact, Paul says, don't let anyone be your judge with those things. But I don't think we want to lose sight of what Isaiah brings to our attention about Sabbath. And I think this still applies in principle to us when we find in Isaiah 58 these words, If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, Then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. Back in uh, the early 80s, a movie that came out called Chariots of Fire about the Scotsman who was a fast runner and went to the Olympics in France in the early part of the 20th century, and uh, his name was Eric Little. And if you've seen that movie, you know there, there came a crisis for him when he arrived at the Olympics. Uh, he was going to run a two or three races, and he realized one of them was going to have a heat on Sunday morning. And I personally think he had the liberty and could have, before God, run that heat on a Sunday, given those circumstances. But his understanding and his conscience was not. He actually forfeited running that race rather than break what he thought before God was something wrong to do and not honoring the Lord's day. And in that, I respect him even though I think he had the freedom uh, to run. But I'm going to close by referencing something that um, we all have experienced in the last year. And this has troubled me. I've bent Brad's ear about it and I've found a sympathetic ear in this regard is that looking at the social media and all the things that we had to do when churches were not gathering, we went through a couple of months where we were putting things online and people were live streaming. And given what we were faced, you know, it was a good substitute. But I underscore the word substitute. Because I found it very bothersome that some people making comments, and I didn't hear anyone at the chapel say this, Maybe you thought it, but I didn't hear anyone say it, is that, you know, actually, I kind of like this, just staying in our jammies and getting on the sofa with coffee and turning on the TV and watching the service on the screen. If you think that's something that you would welcome as normal, then you have a sub-biblical view about what we're doing here today. You do not fully appreciate and understand these few principles I've just laid out for you, if that is really your preference in your heart you're missing something very vital in your life. There are many benefits that are forfeited. I give a list of all the things we do experience when we're here. But if the priority of regular courtship worship is out of balance, I believe so will the rest of your life be out of balance. I know that there are circumstances, people who work in the medical field or in law enforcement, people who face ill health, there are times when you are required to have to miss Sunday worship because of those things. But I do pass along this advice. If you have a job, part-time or full-time, that requires you to miss worship regularly as a way of life every Sunday, I think you should pray to God that he open a door for a new job. Do not be content to just stay in that job and live your life that way. It will have consequences. It's a costly neglect. And if you feel like you're too busy for consistent corporate worship with God's people, then you're busier than God intended you to be. But fortunately, we're here, those of us sitting in this room, to rejoice and how sweet it is to be in the presence of God and to be worshiping Him as we are this morning The priority of worship for the Jews, what could be more conspicuous, and this will be my last comment, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, also called the Torah, written by Moses under the inspiration of God, we find seven chapters, 243 verses describing every aspect of the tabernacle with its furnishings, the holy place, and just how they were to gather for corporate worship of God. 243 verses. He explained the whole creation of the world in 31 verses. What do you think he was wanting to impress on people more? Not that it's not important that God created the world, but my my goodness, creation of the world, 31 verses, 243 describing this is how you worship me. I think there's a lesson in the numbers. Please pray with me. Our Father, we pause to thank you that we are in your presence. We thank you that you have promised us that if we draw near to you, you draw near to us. We thank you that this would not be possible if Jesus Christ had not gone before us. And by giving his flesh and his life and shedding his blood, that veil has been torn away. So that we are not separated from you, but we are in communion with you because of your son, Jesus Christ, who took upon himself our sin and our judgment. And Lord, as we share the bread and the cup this morning, uh, rekindle our hearts with a fresh sense of gratitude that not only can we take of the elements, but we're doing so together as your people. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.